All right, everyone. Welcome back to Connection Talks, a podcast on human relations and personal development. Today, I have another special guest with me on the show. Her name is Laura Boyarskaite. Laura is a neuroscientist and yogini from Lithuania who's currently living in Oslo, Norway. Her field of research is sleep and brainwashing, which is clearance of toxins and waste products from the brain. I met Laura for the first time during my 300-hour yoga teacher training, where she talked about the brain anatomy and science behind meditation. I was so fascinated, and I just had to have her come on the show, and she agreed, and today she's here to talk about her research and herself. Welcome to the show, Laura. Hi, Julia. Welcome. It's very, very nice for you to invite me to come to your show. It's so nice to have you here. And the first question I have for you today is, what does a normal day look like to you? Yeah, so these days, of course, this is a very interesting question because we have this very special situation. And uh, I myself, I am in quarantine because I traveled uh, out of Norway. I was visiting my parents in Lithuania. Uh, So days are a little bit different. But to be honest, I have to tell you that I feel very lucky where I am and in the health situation that I am, that I honestly enjoy being in quarantine. And I saw, you know, also quite some people share this sort of opinion because the the speed or the pace of life is so much slower and uh, things just take time and now you have time. So currently, the day, my, my days look like I've been striving to have them for like years now. So I, I wake up, I, I wake up around seven every day. Then I do uh, my meditation practice and then I do a little bit of yoga. I always feel that if I move a bit in the morning, that really helps me stay energetic and not sleepy throughout the day. Um, yeah, and then about that time, my boyfriend gets up and now he's also working from home. Uh, So then we make some coffee and then we work for a couple of hours. So luckily both of us can work from home. So we're both scientists. And now actually, uh, now is the time when I have to write my thesis. So being isolated at home sort of is the perfect conditions for me to do my writing. Uh, And then finally we get some breakfast. And then after that, actually the day really depends on the weather and if it's sunny or if it's rainy, because if it's uh, really nice weather outside, I usually go for some walks in the woods. We're very lucky also to live quite near the woods. And then the entire day is sort of intermingled with work and walk and workout and food and so on. And then in the evening, of course, some dinner, some TV, now we're watching Seinfeld. I think it's very cozy to, to, to do that, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. And then a bit of yoga before slow, 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 relaxing, unwinding before sleep. That's actually something I really love. And then it's sleep time. <laughs> nice. It, it sounded like you were excited about sleep time. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that is true. That is true. <laughs> So now that you just mentioned that, and it sounds like a, a good day. It sounds like good days for you. Um, can you share a bit about, or first, yeah, can you share about your research? What yeah, are yeah. You- uh, yeah, so uh, I'm a neuroscientist, 
and I study sleep. And more specifically, I study this one process that seems to be happening almost only when we are sleeping. And this process is really, really important for our brain health, for our mental health. Uh, and this process is brainwashing. And by brainwashing, I mean literally brainwashing. So basically what is happening is that throughout the day when we're active and going out uh, about our day, uh, there are certain, uh, let's call it biological trash that accumulates in our brain. So it's various uh, metabolism byproducts, um, waste, toxins, all that, certain molecules that are not generated in a way they should, then they become sticky and start accumulating in our brain. And the accumulation of these biological trash in our brain uh, does damage to our brain. It damages and also kills our brain cells. And uh, it, of course, then results in various illnesses and sicknesses. And the accumulation of these uh, biological trash is known to be associated, very tightly associated with very terrible diseases such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, um, and dementia. And now, uh, quite recently, it was shown that uh, the process which removes this unnecessary biological trash, so brainwashing, that it happens almost only when we are sleeping, which is very interesting, you know? So then some other very cool studies were done, which show that um, if you do not allow people to sleep for a night or two, and then you can actually, with various techniques, check the amount of this biological trash in the brain. And what scientists found that after just one night, one night of restricted sleep, so not enough sleep, there was a significant increase in these biological trashes in our brain. And then some other studies actually showed that uh, if you look how much people sleep throughout their lives, and then you evaluate how many of these people get Alzheimer's, get Parkinson's and stuff like that. Uh, so these are so-called correlational studies. You see that people who sleep six hours or less are, are more likely to get these diseases, to get Alzheimer's, Parkinson's. So the risk is, um, uh, is higher, right? Uh, so basically, my research, what I do is that I'm trying to understand the mechanisms of this brainwashing. Like, how does it work? Why is it happening when we're sleeping and not when we're awake? And which brain cells are important to regulate all this? Uh, what molecules are important for that? And uh, sort of answering these questions then would help us to um, target and harness this brainwashing to help us uh, create treatments or drugs to improve this brainwashing in these diseases and other conditions. Oh, wow. <laughs> that is really interesting. You know, I was just, wow. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> how, how do we accumulate this um, sort of trash that you call it during the day? Mm -hmm. What makes mm -hmm. it, yeah, if you understood my question. Yeah, 
yeah, yeah. Yeah, so basically, um, so our body and our brain is made up of these tiny building blocks, which we call cells. So we have our body cells, we have our liver cells, heart cells, muscle cells, and so on. We have brain cells. And these cells are like tiny little beings. They eat, they eat sugar, they breathe oxygen, and then they generate energy, they do their biochemical processes, and then they also, uh, as a result of that, they uh, generate trash. Same as with humans, you know, we eat, we do things, trash is generated, so to say. Uh, so some of the, 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 this is one type of biological trash that needs to be just uh, um, washed away. It's same everywhere in our body and in, in our brain as well. Also, I mentioned also uh, that there are certain molecules, certain proteins that sometimes they are not made the way they are supposed to be. And then their structure is a bit different. And then this change in structure causes a change in uh, their function and how sticky they are. So then instead of going one place, they stick and accumulate in places where they don't they're they're not wanted there <laughs> you know so then all of this thing basically needs to be washed and the, this is what this brainwashing uh, is then doing and it's so fascinating that it happens during sleep and not yes. during daytime yes so that's true where are you in your research now Yes, so uh, now I'm actually really, well, hopefully <laughs> close to the end. So now I'm actually finishing up my PhD, so I'm writing up, um, writing up my thesis. Uh, but the projects, uh, the projects still keep, uh, keep continuing. <laughs> wow. Uh, can you share about the, um, or what happens in the brain when we sleep? Yes, yes, of course. When we are sleeping and when we are awake, um, different things happen in our brain. Uh, and the difference comes from the activity of our brain cells. So basically when we are awake and when we are sleeping, our cells behave differently. They're active at different times and they're active in different ways. And the cool thing about our brain cells is that when they are active, they send electrical signals to other brain cells and also to our body cells. And since that's electrical signals, it means that we can measure them. So basically, you can place um, these so-called electrodes on, persons, on a person's scalp, and then you can listen in um, to the activity of our brain cells and then you, you can measure it, you know. Uh, so from these sort of studies, now we know that the activity of our brain cells is different when we're awake and then when, when we're sleeping. So when we are awake, actively awake and going about our day, thinking, planning, seeing trees, hearing birds, you know, walking, moving. There's so much different things, so many different things happening. Um, so there's a lot of different signals in our brain. So then 
the signal that we measure um, with these electrodes, which reflects the activity of our brain cells. So basically, it looks like a wave. And since there's so much activity happening at different parts of the brain at different times, the signal is really hectic. It's going up and down, up and down, and it's really not synchronized and so on. And then basically, when we calm down, when we relax, close our eyes, just sit down, um, then our brain activity as well slows down. So then these waves appear bigger and slower. And it is important to say here that it is not that uh, there is less activity in our brain, but it's just different. The pattern is different. Mm -hmm. And then a really, really cool thing happens when we fall asleep. Uh, and the first stage, the, so sleep has two different types. Humans have two different types of sleep. And the first one that we enter when we fall asleep is called slow wave sleep. So then the name really gives it away what kind of signal then we detect. So when we fall asleep, uh, our brain cells, thousands and thousands of them, really unite and synchronize. And then they are active at the same time, and then they're not active at this, uh, also at the same times. So then mm, the signal that we detect really looks like big, slow waves. Uh, and then after slow wave sleep, uh, we enter another sleep state, which for uh, many people know it as the dream sleep. So it's rapid eye movement sleep or REM sleep. But here it's important to break uh, one uh, common myth that uh, this is the only sleep state that we dream in. Uh, actually, it is not. Um, uh, we dream uh, through both sleep types. But the thing is that during this REM sleep, uh, we have very vivid, very lively dreams and we remember them a little bit better. Uh, so that's why it seemed that we only dream during this um, sleep state. And then very interesting thing happens during this sleep state is that our brain activity again becomes uh, faster. So it's not slowing down even more, but it becomes slightly faster and very synchronized. And actually, this sleep state has also been called paradoxical sleep because the activity of brain cells that uh, we have during the sleep state is really similar actually to how it looks, looks like when we are awake. And so actually in the beginning, there was quite some confusion. How is it possible that we have like same brain cell activity as when we are awake, but the person is like clearly unconscious? So yeah, so basically this is the, the, the difference between an awake brain and a sleeping brain is in the activity pattern of our brain cells. Wow. Okay. So how I understood it now is that in wakeful state and in uh, REM sleep, we have the same type of pattern. And then yeah, when so we're not in the REM sleep, we have slower waves and slower pattern. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yes, you are uh, almost entirely correct. So when we are awake and when we are in this uh, REM uh, sleep, uh, the activity is uh, very, very similar, but uh, of brain cells is very, very similar, but it's not completely the same. But yes, uh, other than that, you're absolutely right. 
Wow. And also what you share about that we um, might dream not only in REM sleep, but also in non-REM sleep. Because, <laughs> but is it only during the night that we enter REM sleep? Or are we possible to enter that state uh, if we, let's say, sleep during the day? Yes, uh, it it is possible to whenever you fall asleep, you enter, you go through the same sleep state. So here, actually, I would like to also mention that. Um, so when humans fall, when uh, humans fall asleep, we cycle through different sleep states. So in the beginning, it's the slow wave sleep and the slow wave sleep. Uh, uh, there are actually three stages of it going deeper and deeper into sleep. So slow wave sleep one, two and three, and then we enter REM sleep. And then again, slow wave sleep, one, two, three, and then REM sleep. And then one cycle, so slow wave sleep, one, two, three, and REM lasts around 90 minutes. And then we go through the night, we go through like four or five cycles. So the only thing that I wanted to mention here regarding like going for a nap during the day, you can enter REM sleep, but you just have to sleep long enough because REM comes uh, at the end of the cycle. Oh, and a cycle is 90 minutes. It's up around 90 minutes, yes. And then we repeat it again throughout yes. the night. Yes, oh, so wow, then we cycle so through. Mm -hmm. okay. And then um, another thing regarding the balance of slow wave sleep and REM sleep throughout the night is that um, we, uh, in the first part of the night, when we just fall asleep up until like the middle of our sleep, we get percentage-wise more slow wave sleep. So slow wave sleep in that 90-minute cycle takes more space than REM sleep. But then more towards the morning, slow wave sleep in the cycle uh, gets less and less um, duration or attention. <laughs> and then there's more and more REM sleep. So that's also okay. why it was sort of thought that we dream more in the morning because we have more REM sleep and so on. Okay, and, and my um, interpretation of that is that it, we, perhaps uh, the brain kind of prepares us for the wakeful state or for the morning. I don't know if that's correct, but since the pattern is quite similar, it's kind of like waking us up i don't know <laughs> ah, yeah that's actually a cool idea that's a, that's a cool idea so uh, from a scientific perspective I, I i don't know if this is the case but at least also uh, this reminds me of one of theory or hypothesis for for example for why we sleep is to sort of prepare us for whatever might come when we are awake so that's also why sometimes you maybe dream how you are running somewhere or i don't know there are wars or fights or something and then you're coming up with solutions uh, or running running away or something it's it's as if you would be then prepared in real life if this happened oh really mm -hmm. so there are studies on that uh, well, it's more of theories and hypotheses because it's really hard to scientifically study if this is actually the case. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. And I'm just so fascinated by dreams. Like, why do we dream and so on? But yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's a good question. <laughs> and also, um, okay, so um, in regards to this uh, brainwashing, mm -hmm. uh, because you said that it happens while we sleep. Is it, um, does this brainwash happen when we have those, that full uh, cycle 
of sleep, like the different states, is that where this happens? Mm -hmm. So for now, actually, for now, we know that if you compare um, if you compare people after a day of being awake to after being asleep, so sort of you can only compare wakefulness and sleep as a whole so far. And there we see that um, after sleep, there's more biological trash removed from the brain. And now scientists, also including uh, me and, and uh, our lab, we are trying to figure out if, let's say, one type of sleep is more important uh, than the other and when this thing happens. The, the short answer is actually that we still don't know. It's, it's a really good question, though, uh, which I'm very interested in myself. <laughs> <laughs> cool. And so why is sleep so important for our health? Oh, yes. That is a wonderful, wonderful question. <laughs> so first, um, I think uh, we can uh, all remember and appreciate that sleep is, of course, vital for our survival, right? Because if, if a person um, stops sleeping for one or another reason, that person dies in less than two weeks. Uh, oh. So sleep is absolutely vital, same as drinking water, eating food, getting uh, oxygen, right? Uh, but what is really overlooked and uh, sort of underappreciated in our society is the importance of getting enough sleep. And enough means uh, getting seven to nine hours of uninterrupted sleep uh, every night. Uh, and another thing about sleep is that, unfortunately, you, you cannot sort of get... If, if you lose some sleep, it doesn't work in a way that you can sleep more to sort of get, get it okay. back. <laughs> uh, so that sucks, but this is also where importance of regularity of sleep comes into picture so that your um, work days aren't too different uh, to your weekends. Uh, and uh, sleep, so you can also actually think about sleep as sleep is the price that we pay to be awake. In general terms speaking, being awake is harmful to our body. <laughs> being awake, <laughs> being <laughs> awake uh, generates a slight amount of damage every day, which then has to be fixed when we are sleeping. When we are awake, you know, there are all of, as I mentioned uh, as, as well earlier, there are all of these biological trash accumulating in our body and in our brain, you know. There's a certain cell damage, muscle damage. If you like worked out, you know, your muscles got damaged. Uh, from the UV light, whatever else you are exposed to every day, you know, you use up your energy and so on. So it's, it's a slight level of damage that then during sleep we have to fix. And I really, really like how one very uh, famous our day sleep scientist, his name is Matthew Walker, and I'm citing him everywhere I talk about sleep. Uh, and he uh, described sleep as being the Swiss army knife of health because uh, sleep is Im important, crucial for optimal functioning of absolutely 
all of our body systems, for our brain and mental health, focus, attention, memory, immune system, which is very important now, reproductive system, metabolism, digestion, blood sugar control, muscle regeneration. I mean, you name it. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's basically, you know, if you're really looking for something to improve your health. And I don't know how you say it in Norwegian, but at least in Lithuanian, we have the saying that you shoot like two rabbits with one uh, shot. So if you really want to target many, 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 many different parts of your health with like one thing, that's proper sleep. That's getting enough sleep. Mm. Hmm. Okay. Oh, and can you share what happens if we don't get enough sleep? Yes, absolutely. Another one of my uh, another favorite of my topics when talking about <laughs> sleep, because I think uh, also um, sharing information about what happens when we don't get enough sleep and how how sleep deprivation is damaging to our bodies. I think it's very nice, nicely it nicely illustrates how important sleep actually is you know yeah so and we can actually yeah <laughs> and we can actually take it just from our personal experience right so you get up after a night of really bad sleep like you didn't get enough sleep right yes you get up you feel like crap i mean cranky irritated tired uh, everything is annoying. Uh, you, I mean, at, at least that's how I feel. I yeah, mean, definitely, me too. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you're not you're you're not at your best. I mean, um, no. and and that's just you know simple sort of proof from everyday life, right? Uh, but I think I would like to give uh, examples of how um, not enough sleep impairs different systems of our body. I will take it one system at a time. And uh, of course, with the current situation, I would really like to start with how not enough sleep impairs terribly our immune system. So sleep is very important to keep your immune system working as it should. So here, actually, there's um, so immune system has all of these different types of immune cells that help us fight off bacteria, pathogens, and all of these bad things that try to in, in, infect us. And uh, one type of of this uh, of these immune cells, they are also called killer cells, and you can guess what they do: they kill <laughs> pathogens and bacteria. You know all of that. Cool. Yes, and uh, so they're like your secret agents, ninjas that fight off all of these microbes. And uh, when we sleep six hours or less, when we are sleep deprived and don't get enough sleep, the number of these cells gets reduced by almost 50%. Oh, wow. So, Yes. So not like sleeping like for four or five hours in, uh, in a night, you get up with way less soldiers to protect you. So if you want your immune system to really work as it should and help you be protected from um, the, all of the viruses and, and bacteria and pathogens and so on, you know, you really need to get your, your good night's sleep. Uh, now, another 
there was another study uh, who looked at people that slept like eight hours. Then there was another group which slept six hours or less. And then after that, I don't remember fully if they kept this protocol of sleep deprivation for four or six or seven days or so. But basically after that, scientists, <laughs> bad scientists tried to infect uh, those people with rhinovirus, so runny nose, you know, <laughs> and then they see that uh, the people who underslept, they were infected way easier with this virus than people who slept uh, enough. And then last point regarding the immune system and the importance of sleep, which is very important now for the future as well, is that is regarding vaccination, is that vaccines are not as efficient on people who are sleep deprived, who are underslept, and that is sleeping six hours or less. So it's not that you didn't sleep at all. Um, so uh, when you get vaccinated, that basically um, raises your immunity against the pathogen that you are vaccinated. Uh, and uh, people who sleep six hours or less, uh, the, the effect of, of the vaccine on their immune system is really reduced. So they, are, they do not benefit from that vaccine mm. as, as they should as well. Mm. And that's only regarding the immune system, you know. Yeah. I think another, yeah, another but then topic. Yeah. Could I just share? So uh, a good quality of sleep is interrupted sleep. So you can't, um, so it's not if you wake up during night, during the night, it has to be a full uninterrupted sleep, right? Yes. 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 So uh, there are a few things few parameters that are important for sleep. So that's regularity, that's continuity, uh, that's quality and duration. Uh, so that's again, four, four pillars of sleep that this Matthew Walker uh, describes. Uh, so you have to get enough sleep, so seven to nine hours, but you also have to get uh, not interrupted sleep so continuity so you shouldn't be waking up uh, too often during the night uh, then there's also quality and that's actually so i describe these brain waves that are happening like these uh, so the quality is in principle described by how big the waves are and uh, this no, is where you, you I, I lost you for a little bit. Yeah. Uh, okay. No, 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 it's fine. Uh, uh, so uh, regarding the quality of sleep, um, so as I described these brain waves and the slow waves that are happening during sleep, uh, quality is described by how big these waves are and uh, the amplitude. So this is actually where size really matters. <laughs> your, your waves should be big there. Uh, yes, so all of these and regularity that you go to sleep pretty much same time every day and you get up same time every day, regardless if it's a weekend. Yeah. Okay, mm -hmm. so are there some ways that you can um, improve the quality of sleep? Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, so there are quite a few easy tips uh, what everyone who wants to improve uh, their sleep uh, um, can do uh, so first of all uh, well, uh, actually first of all i would like to mention that 
if you wake up every morning feeling refreshed and energized and every, like throughout the day, you're not sleepy, you're functioning well, and in the evening you don't really struggle with falling asleep, you're fine. Don't overthink it. As long as you feel and function fine, don't overthink it really. But if you feel that maybe it's a bit harder to fall asleep sometimes, you don't feel so refreshed, you struggle with sleeping uh, uh, as, as long as you would like to. So then there are several things that you can do. So first actually is the temperature of your bedroom. So for us to fall asleep, our bodies need to cool down by half a degree Celsius. Uh, so it really helps to keep your bedroom um, colder than your usual uh, other rooms <laughs> and open a window, get some fresh air, you know, don't turn up those radiators. Um, then it's light. Light is a very, very potent wake-upper. It uh, arouses us. So three, four, five hours before sleep, uh, just turn the lights down, dim them down in, 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 in your home. Um, don't even dim down all of your screens best if 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 you don't scroll and watch uh, and, and look at those screens too close to your sleep um, now also we have quite a lot a, lo a lot of accessible technology to help us uh, regarding light so it's actually the blue light that is the the most potent uh, ar arouser and wake upper so that's why we have these reddish looking filters on our phone and other screens we can get light bulbs that turn uh, reddish to uh, towards the evening you know so th these are important things uh, as well uh, your bed and your bedroom is for sleep and sleep only uh, well, some other sleep-related activities as well, of course, but basically sleep. You shouldn't work there. You shouldn't watch movies there. Uh, because especially if, if, if you work there, you get one way or another. When you work, you get irritated or something. And then suddenly your brain starts to, <laughs> starts to couple, you know, your bed, your resting place with being stressed out. And oh, then... You know, mm -hmm. so bed is only for sleep and relaxation. Um, another, actually, one tip which is very, um, it works very well for people who struggle with falling asleep, and it might sound counterintuitive, but it's if you go to sleep and you cannot fall asleep for a long time, and then you start, you know, shifting from right to left and, st and already start stressing, counting how many hours you have left to sleep and so on, it's actually recommended to get up and do something else until you fall, until you feel sleepy. Because mm -hmm. then again, uh, you should only associate your bed with sleep and being sleepy and uh, feeling sleepy and not feeling stressed that you cannot fall asleep. So then read a book, do yoga nidra, meditate, drink a cup of calming tea, do something that, that is boring to you, that makes you sleep, you know? Uh, and I guess the, yeah. That's <laughs> the really last, fascinating. Yeah. yeah yes. And the last thing. 
oh yeah sorry <laughs> and then the i i can talk about sleep i mean not interrupted for hours and hours so it's, i'm very sorry you have to interrupt me basically uh and another last thing another last thing that is really important if you want to tidy up your sleep is regularity um, so our body our entire body every organ uh, of course our brain as well is um, orchestrated by biological clocks we have clocks you know our body has times when it should go to sleep and sleep and there's time for when we should wake up there are times when we should eat and so on um, and so regularity helps us to keep this biological clock running smoothly we're going to bed at the same time we're waking up at the same time because if we like uh, during work days let's say we go to bed at what 10 11 and then during weekend we go to bed at two or three that's like major difference. And suddenly our biological clocks don't really understand what we are doing here and what they should do. And then suddenly the week starts again and your biological clock says, hey, it's still not two in the night. What are you doing in bed? And here you cannot fall asleep, you know? Yes. Wow. So, yeah. So we confuse, the, we confuse our bodies with... Yes. Um, getting getting to sleep in different time like diff yeah at different times yeah absolutely and i also like what you said about uh, association like how you associate mm. it that you associate the bed with feeling sleepy and and going to sleep yeah yeah i don't know it it takes me to actually meditation and and what we how the how we can really train our mind kind of to yeah associate and yeah. think in different ways uh do you want to talk about some about meditation oh yeah sure sure very interested in that but yeah do you want to yeah absolutely uh, i will just i i just would like to quickly mention some other things how sleep uh, impairs our health uh, in in, yes. in other parts yeah. of body because i think it's yeah i think it's relevant especially these days and i also think it's really important yes. uh but i'm i'm yeah, so another thing that I think many people associate sleep function with the most is memory, right? So that yeah. sleep is important for this memory consolidation or storing of your new memories and new experiences. And that's really important, especially for, you know, for all the students, for kids and, and teenagers learning so much every day. And here, actually, what is interesting is that sleep is important for memory in two different ways. So uh, when we learn something new during the day, those new memories are actually put in a place which we can regard it as short-term storage. So we store it now a little bit. And then during sleep, our brain sort of looks through all of these new memories and new experiences and, and uh, decides what's important, what's not. And then that what is important, it, uh, these memories are then transferred from short-term uh, storage to long-term storage. So sleep is important to kind of click save button on the wh whatever new you have learned, you know. And then another, yeah, <laughs> I think it it works well with this metaphor, you know. Yeah. And and uh, you can also imagine that you know your short term storage 
your inbox, so to say. It's not endless. There, there are physical limits to it. So you cannot just put everything in short-term storage. So you learn something new, your short-term storage capacity is full. And then if you don't get sleep to remove all of those things from short-term to long-term, your short-term storage is full. You cannot learn anything more. So you basically, you need sleep to remove all of this, these things and prepare your short-term storage to learn new things. So you need to sleep to be able to learn and to save what you have learned. So it's sort of two, two-way street kind of. Uh, and then oh, so I you think, repeat that to learn and to save. Yes. Uh, so uh, you need to get enough sleep to save what you have already learned in the, throughout the day so that it, it is not lost. And then at the same time, you need to prepare your brain to receive new information in the coming day. Oh. Mm -hmm. Yeah so that you have space right to to do that and i think for your podcast especially i would like to mention one uh, more um, important function of sleep uh, for our emotional health so that's basically uh, REM sleep, so this uh, rapid eye movement sleep, which comes at the end of our sleep cycle, and we have more of it towards uh, the morning at the second part of the night. So REM sleep is very important for our emotional health. Um, during REM sleep, our the processing of very emotional um, experiences and memories happen, and the as, as a sort of proof, uh, um, there are several very interesting studies done and observations uh, done on uh, war veterans with uh, PTSD, so post-traumatic post stress syndrome, and other people who experience PTSD. So their REM sleep is really affected. They don't have as much REM sleep. It's very interrupted. It's much worse quality than healthy adults. And very interestingly, uh, there are um, a few, that there is this one drug that, uh, uh, and basically they don't have this, they don't have enough of this REM sleep because uh, there seems to be too much of one of stress hormones in their brain, which then doesn't allow their brain to actually enter this REM sleep. And the, there's this one drug which uh, reduces the amount of the stress hormone in their brain. And uh, initial studies uh, show promising results that then these people start getting more REM sleep, better REM sleep, and then their PTSD symptoms improve. So they start to deal with, with the sort of the, 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 the emotional traumatic experience better. Mm -hmm. So uh, also, as you know, people often say that uh, uh, all time heals, time heals all wounds. So then it seems that it's REM sleep heals. It's your mm -hmm. over, overnight therapy. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Mm. Yes. And then 
Of course, the other systems that are affected by, by, by lack of sleep is your appetite. Uh, there are actually, I wanted to mention uh, appetite because it is uh, uh, regulated by two very cool hormones and their names are ghrelin and leptin. And they sound like <laughs> dwarfs, dwarf names, you know, from the fairy tale, but they're not. <laughs> they're... So basically ghrelin as it sounds, it's this hormone that tells you, eat now, I want food. So it increases your appetite. And the yeah. other hormone called leptin, and that one is released into your body after you have eaten to tell your body that, okay, we're full, we got enough food, it's fine. But when you don't get enough sleep, ghrelin goes crazy so ghrelin is released and is almost always constantly telling you like get food get food get some food and then leptin sadly is really repressed and and its levels is reduced and even when you eat it doesn't tell your body anymore that uh, you are satiated you're full so that's why you also eat more after uh, after you don't get um, enough sleep Oh, really? So you don't get enough. Could you repeat that? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so basically when you sleep six hours or less, so when you don't get enough sleep, you tend to eat more the next day. And scientists actually even measured it and you eat more approximately 300 to 400 calories more per day. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah, and you know, it might not sound so much, but just think about if it happens every day for a year. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. quite some kilograms here only from that, right? Yeah, yeah. It is so important with good sleep. I see that. You know, I have very interrupted sleep. I I think I uh, drink a lot right before bedtime. So then I always wake up during the night Mm. to go to the bathroom. And I think I I wake up like two or three times. Mm. And then I feel so tired during the day or in the morning because then I've been up, you know, I haven't gotten the uninterrupted sleep. So, yeah. Yes. Yes. Actually, I, I... uh, I really resonate with you here because I tend to, I tended to do the same thing. But one thing that actually really helped me, I don't know, maybe you can try it. Maybe you have tried it. So then sorry if I'm just uh, b- blasting advice when it's not really needed. But I, I, I drink a lot of water in the first part of the day, like a lot a lot a lot ah, okay. and then yeah. i'm not i don't feel as thirsty in the evening so then i don't drink as much and you know that really helped me really yes. uh, actually that was a good advice i i, <laughs> I actually didn't know about this um okay cool <laughs> you so, can, because you then you try. kind of feel because then you fill up with lots of you know lots of water and then you probably don't need as much in the evening Yes, I, I, I mean, at least that's at how least you don't feel I thirsty. Think. Yeah, yes, precisely, precisely. Okay, good. Wow, that's a good advice. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I will have to see with uh, like other things regarding my sleep routine. And uh, yeah, yeah I, I don't like to keep it like cold inside yeah. my room because I'm. I, I'm such a, in Norwegian, we call it frisepinna. It's like, I'm, ah! I'm, 
like so cold and I need to use socks and stuff. I see. So then I just want to have it like warm. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Yeah. Now there's lots of things that I can do to change to, I think, help improve my sleep. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Um, Laura, what made you become a neuroscientist? Like, oh, what yeah. sparked the interest in you? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. And I think a short answer would be a book. <laughs> so that basically um, at the end of my master's studies, and at that time I was living in Copenhagen. So at the end of my master's studies, I was really lost and confused of what I wanted to do with my life after that. At that time, I was really at like the peak, peak interest of yoga asanas as well. And um, uh, so I had so many different, uh, you know, thoughts. I thought, ah, how, uh, how about I just quit science and I become a yoga teacher or do I just get some kind of normal job or do I continue with with a with a career in academia so then the next step is is starting on a phd so i was really confused because everything seemed like okay well let's do that or this or this and then this book came into my hands and the, this this book is called the, the brain that changes itself and the book describes this absolutely amazing ability of our brains to be plastic throughout the life, to adapt, to be able to change through our entire life, not only in our childhood, but also when we are adults. And the book described these magical uh, studies and observations, you know, where, uh, where doctors and scientists by using uh, appropriate and very smartly designed mental exercises or physical exercises, they were able to help people deal with their learning disabilities, with, with dyslexia, with movement, uh, uh, with movement problems after like uh, uh, various uh, brain uh, insults and so on. So I, I was really surprised by how much can be done by, well, simply, not really simply, but by just understanding the fundamental working mechanisms of the brain, you know? And then, uh, then I, it sort of came to me that, hey, I, I would really like to be a part of this. Like, I would really be so happy if I could be, you know, if I could contribute to, like, with the slightest, slightest bit to understanding how our brain works. Uh, and then maybe we can do some more magical things about it, you know. Um, so that was it. And then I just started looking for, for a PhD in neuroscience. <laughs> wow. So before that, you didn't study anything related to the brain, and then you took a... And then oh, yes. you decided to do a PhD in neuroscience. Yes, that's actually a good point. You know, I didn't even think about it. But yes, so for my bachelor and for my master's, I was studying, well, kind of related things in terms of natural sciences. So I studied biochemistry and I studied pharmaceutical sciences. But I never really, I, I never worked with brain. I never really studied brain specifically, you know. 
Uh, and then, uh, yeah, that book came and then I was like, yeah, brain it is. <laughs> <laughs> cool. That's really cool. And you said that in that, um, in that time frame that you discovered this book, you were also interested in meditation and yoga. Yeah. And how did you become interested in that? Yes. That kind of sparked this other path for you. Uh-huh. I think so. Um, first time ever that I heard about meditation and yoga was when I was, I guess, 17, 18 or so. So I had this one friend and he was really into Buddhism and yoga and meditation and he just wouldn't shut up about it. I mean, I would hear about it and other friends as well, you know, daily, every day which now I really appreciate. <laughs> uh, but then for quite some years, I really didn't do anything with that knowledge or, or, or anything. And then I think it was 2012. It was the year I moved to Copenhagen. Uh, that is when I tried for the first time meditation and yoga. And I never looked back, <laughs> you know, after that. So regarding, um, I really got into yoga asana practice very much. But then, of course, in the beginning, my my uh, interest was really driven sort of the, the physical aspect of it. You know, I really liked how the body could move and how quickly I improved in the beginning. You know, it's like you just get stretchy and you think, like, oh, yeah, this is happening. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, but then with meditation, with meditation for many years, so since 2012, it was really on and off. Uh, basically, it was, you know, I meditate for some weeks or months and then things are fine. Like life is fine. Then, of course, you think, oh, I don't need to meditate anymore. And then you're fine for weeks or months or so. And then again, something happens, whatever. You don't feel yourself or, or something. Then again, I picked up this meditation practice, you know. And then it went like this until I would say maybe a year, um, a year ago. Um, uh, I started meditating really regularly. So it's every day. I don't do very long meditations yet. This is something, of course, that I would like to, to try and do. And slowly I'm merging towards that. But I guess my first goal was to just get the regularity going, that I do it every day. Um, and regarding meditation, you know, uh, first came the personal interest and the personal practice. And then out of that came a scientific interest, you know. So then um, I started reading all about like, okay, let's, let's see, you know, do we know anything about the neuroscience of meditation, you know, and what is like actually truly proven that is happening in our brain and stuff like that. And I was blown away as well by what meditation can do to our brain and body. And I think that subconsciously or consciously that helped to tidy up my meditation practice regularity, you know, um, when you know how good it is. <laughs> I see. So, because that's also a question that, that I wanted to ask you, since you know so much about how the brain works, right? Then mm. How is it for you to meditate? Yeah. <laughs> oh, if, it's, a, if it's possible to even explain, you know? I think this is actually a very wonderful question. It's really interesting, you know? Uh, 
I don't know how to answer it, but I think it's, it's the same as for others. And at the same time, it's very different from all the others. Now, what I mean by that, it's the same as for all of the others is I don't think that I bring any kind of neuroscientist's perspective into my practice. I think that when I'm practicing, I'm just I'm just there, you know, with whatever I'm trying to observe, <laughs> you know, there. <laughs> so it's, uh, of course, you know, maybe it would be cool, but it's not really happening. It would be cool if I was sitting there feeling something, meditating, and then I would think, ooh, like my amygdala and my insula are increasing their activity or like something. I, don't, I feel my brain waves, you know. That's unfortunately not happening. I think that would be a very cool uh, experience. Um, yes, but uh, yeah, none of the scientific thing, I guess from the scientific perspective, you know, one thing that I wanted to share was that, uh, uh, so my biggest struggle with meditation was that I thought that if, if I had like a lot of thoughts, if I had this itch through entire practice on my ankle and my back hurt, I thought that meditation didn't work then because I wasn't able to focus because I wasn't able to like observe my thoughts, you know? So then I thought that like the, 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 the effect of meditation, the benefit really uh, depended on how I felt that meditation went, you know? And there's was actually this wonderful study as well done that mm -hmm. show, you know, that so they got people meditating, one group of people that meditated, and then they also asked those people, how do you feel your practice went? Was it good? Are you satisfied? Or was it bad? And like, you couldn't focus at all. And then they measured uh, a few different things um, on their physiological things of their body, uh, which meditation could affect. And then what was really surprising and incredibly encouraging that it didn't matter at all if you think that your meditation went good or bad. They measured same effects. So the benefits and the effects of meditation are completely independent on how you think your meditation went. Oh, wow. And yes, you know, know that. <laughs> So that, and then that was exactly my reaction. And then when I read that, I was like, okay, so I mean, I just do it. I just show up, right? How very often, you know, all of the meditation teachers and yoga teachers, they just show up, come and show up. You already showed up. That's awesome, you know? And, uh, and just do your minutes. <laughs> because it, there, there's still an effect from it. Yes, from yes, practicing. yes. Yes, yes, yes. Wow. Because you show up, you do your practice, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, this actually gives me more motivation to do the yes. practice. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Um, I know that you teach uh, about the brain anatomy in um, Atman Yoga School and uh, Yoga Nidra as well. Yeah, so in uh, I teach in uh, the workshop for yoga nidra and restorative yoga as well, and there I basically explain these brain waves and 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 the benefits of of yoga nidra. Mm -hmm. Can you share briefly uh, the benefits and what happens in the brain? Yes. So, uh, mm -hmm. yes. Uh, will, shall I start with meditation or yoga nidra? You can start with meditation. 
Perfect. Very good. Uh, so regarding meditation, um, now we know quite some about the physiological benefits, what we can measure, what meditation does to our body. And I guess one, uh, the, the most famous one and the, the, the most sort of quantified one is that meditation really helps us to deal with our stress and anxiety. It really reduces stress and anxiety in different populations, young, old, students, professors, male, female, you name it, it works. Um, so it, meditation is a very, very powerful tool to manage your stress and anxiety. And that also counts panic attacks. And then, of course, you can immediately think that, you know, stress and anxiety really affects pretty much the rest of your body, right? Your sleep gets worse. So meditation as well improves your sleep. It helps, you know, t tackle your stress, improves your sleep. Um, meditation as well. So stress goes down. Stress hormones go down. Your heart rate goes down. Your blood pressure goes down. So meditation is also recommended not as a treatment, but as an aid to help uh, to people with high blood pressure and various cardiovascular conditions that require lowering your blood pressure levels, you know. Um, so the benefits of, of, of meditation, oh, and of course, meditation, brain act uh, <laughs> the, the activity of, of, of the brain, right? Focus goes majorly up. Attention, memory, working efficiency, you are, able to process information faster and more of that information. So it is actually, I mean, it is smart to actually take a 10 or 15 minute meditation practice if you want to improve your work efficiency or the amount of work that you want to do. It is completely, I mean, inefficient to continue working for 10 or 12 or 13 hours. You're unable to keep your focus and attention. It's, you're wasting time. It's way better that you take a nap or meditate and then get back to work. Um, yeah. <laughs> question in between there. Um, oh, so what, now I completely forgot, but... Um, <laughs> I just talked too much. I'm sorry. <laughs> It's fine, but um, because with meditation, so um, what, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but um, why do you think that is, that we improve, that our focus improves with meditation practice? Is there oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, actually, there is. And uh, the, this has this is actually a very nice transition from the physiological benefits of meditation into what is happening in our brain when we meditate. Mm -hmm. uh, so at least partly uh, the benefits of meditation, especially on your brain performance, can be explained by how meditation affects your brain. Uh, so first of all, there are different ways to measure the activity of our brain. And we have already discussed one, which is putting those electrodes on your scalp. Uh, but then there are others. Another one is called functional magnetic resonance imaging. I'm not going to start explaining how it works, partly because I don't fully understand myself. But it uh, helps us to see... Uh, the activity in different parts of our brain, if it goes up, if it goes down. And different parts of our brain are associated with different 
functions. For example, one part is important for memory, another one for fear, for emotional processing, for movement, and so on, right? So now when the scientists put uh, meditating peoples, um, peoples, <laughs> meditating people in this scanner and then looked at their brain activity, what they saw was that uh, quite a number of brain regions uh, increased their activity. So there was more activity happening there. They really lit up. And these brain parts were associated with memory, faster information processing, decision-making, emotional regulation, compassion, empathy, goal-directed actions, and all that. So at least partly... Um, the effects of meditation on our cognitive performance can be explained by how meditation affects the brain parts, the activity of brain parts that actually regulate or, or mediate these actions, you know? Yeah. Mm. Okay. So, uh, in the, in that research, um, do the meditating people <laughs> that they research yeah. on, uh, are they meditating while they're being researched or yeah yeah okay yeah, yeah, yeah wow okay that's really fascinating thank you for there. explaining that um, oh yeah 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 that's no problem uh yeah so yeah. those studies are also done with people that meditate inside the scanner and actually if you if you want you can or everyone who wants like you can google monk fmri and then you will see a monk in a in a robe uh, being put in the scanner with all of these electrodes and i think it's just so funny <laughs> and then yeah. they meditate there you know <laughs> <laughs> do you want to explain the benefits of yoga nidra and yes uh, and the anatomy behind that yeah please yeah 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 so regarding yoga nidra um practice so yoga nidra is far less studied than meditation so there's less information about it uh, but there is certain type of studies that i would like to share because uh, there quite many people have been uh, tested and checked by different uh, independent laboratories and so on so what we now know uh, regarding yoga nidra that yoga nidra as well is really powerful uh, to deal with stress and anxiety and um, yoga nidra is also uh, really uh, a good tool uh, in uh, quite a few medical conditions not to treat them but to help to manage them and to help to sort of make them a bit easier. Uh, I will give examples now. It's going to be a bit clearer. For example, uh, people suffering from uh, chronic pain, uh, different types of chronic pain. Yoga Nidra uh, has, sh uh, so studies show that Yoga Nidra uh, allows those uh, people they feel less pain they per, they deal with the with their pain better mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. same goes for uh, women and uh, various types of uh, menstrual uh, irregularities also uh, pain uncomfort in the belly and stuff like that so uh, yoga nidra as well reduces some of these symptoms and again helps to manage them better like you your well-being is increased by that you deal with this with these things you know easier uh, and uh, yeah so same goes with the very with the different stress situations anxiety anxiety attacks panic attacks as well it can provide sort of an instant relief in these situations 
Um, so that's very powerful. And I actually also remember that uh, when you, we met me and you and we had the coffee and we had those Fastelovin buns or <laughs> something like that. <laughs> So we have we talked a little bit about this, and um, I would like to repeat myself here and uh, just say that uh, meditation and as, uh, so yoga nidra and meditation as well. It's not that they can treat diseases or um, they cannot change current best medicines and best treatments, but what uh, meditation and especially what yoga nidra can do is help you live with certain things it help you manage things increase your sort of well-being and increase your ability to manage life situations or medical situations you know and then it's to to me it seems that sometimes if especially if you're living with a chronic condition you need this break you need this little little release of feeling a bit better just to get back on track and and to continue dealing with whatever you are dealing, you know. So this is where yoga nidra practice is really powerful. Thank you. And for the audience who doesn't know what yoga nidra is, can you briefly share about it? Yes, I'm so sorry. You know, it's like connection talks, yoga, and I'm like, oh, yoga nidra. Uh, so it's not that I know very much about yoga nidra from the more spiritual uh, part, but yoga nidra basically is a very, it's yogic sleep. Uh, it's also called yogic sleep. It's very different from sleep, but uh, basically it's a deep uh, and very restorative, very relaxing meditation where you are guided through different stages. Uh, so at first you focus on your body, then on your breath, then on your feelings and emotions, and, and then on specific visualization, which uh, as far as I understand, allows you to be in this state uh, where you can work with some with a specific uh, statement or a specific idea that is really means a lot to you the so-called sankalpa as far as i remember and then in this state um it will sort of really reach deep levels of of your being of your consciousness uh while bringing all of the other uh, uh health benefits thank you thank you for explaining that and uh yeah it's still a little difficult for me to, uh, although I studied a little bit about it in 300-hour teacher training, I'm still like, oh, how can I explain everything that's happening? And, uh, you know, all the practices, all the beautiful yoga practices. Well, yes. we do know that they work, though. And, yes, uh, right. <laughs> and thank you so much for explaining. You, yeah, thank you. Um, also, Regarding topics such as self-judgment and self-improvement, now we are going more into the personal development uh, field, let's say, of, of connection talks. And like topics such as self-judgment, perfectionism, are these topics that we are able to work on with meditation? Yes, absolutely. 
I mean, honestly, I think that you can work on whatever you want with meditation and you will find one way or another to help um, yourself. So self-judgment and perfectionism are really my two of uh, quite a few of my enemies that I am carrying throughout life. And this perfectionism, I think, is both my blessing and my demise, if you can uh, say. And uh, I am... I relate. I feel you. (laughs) I don't know. Uh, Yes. So I remember one um, one colleague uh, in a lab where I worked in Copenhagen uh, gave me probably one of the best advice I have ever gotten, especially for a scientific world. And then she said, Laura, better done than perfect. And that sort of... <laughs> I like know? that. I really like that. <laughs> you know, although it's difficult. Yes. <laughs> oh, yes, absolutely. So that's sort of what I'm, I, what I'm working with. And uh, uh, yeah, so regarding, uh, regarding meditation, you know, it just helps you. Uh, like, it seems that also it all, all boils down to also self-acceptance and self-compassion, you know. If you accept yourself the way you are, suddenly you don't judge yourself, of course, too much. And you're not striving for this perfectionism because, you know, what is perfectionism? So you're trying to prove something either to yourself or to others, which again means what? That you do not accept yourself as you are. <laughs> so it's this sort of circle so you just sit there and meditate (laughs) yeah and um we're gonna with this we're gonna slowly wrap uh the conversation up but i have some more questions for you and what does connection mean to you Ah, yes, the word connection. Ah, you know, I had to give this uh, quite some thought, actually. But I think that connection to other human being, uh, connection even to a place or connection to an activity that you're doing, is this feeling of like click to me. Like suddenly at that one moment, everything seems to be exactly where it is supposed to be. And then you just, you feel, there's this very, very distinct feeling that to me associates really with connection. Um, and you, you cannot not notice it, you know? Uh, yeah, it all just seems as it is supposed to be for those couple of moments, you know? And, uh, and I think that this true connection, it, I, at least I felt true connection very few times in my life with people or with, with places, with activities, with, you know. Um, and I think that's what makes connection so special to me or in my opinion that it's so rare. So when it happens, it's like, oh my God, here it is again. Yes, this is nice. <laughs> you know, <laughs> A very good explanation of it. I, I feel it. And you know, I, I really think, uh, I really like your explanation because it's, it's something that I, I, I feel it when you say it. Mm, nice. yeah. <laughs> and I also think that it's, it's something really special because it doesn't occur yeah. all the time, you know, so it's a, it's a um, special thing. Um, and also, um, where do you see yourself in five years? Oh, yes. So when I grow up, I really want to <laughs> be a, a group leader and have my own research group. And that's where I'm going, you know. And the, so all jokes aside, this is academic well, career. Speaking about career and, and, and um, academia, you know, 
uh, I would really like to have my own little research group and continue tackling all of these questions about how our brain works and, and sleep and so on. But uh, one little change that I would like for the future. Uh, so now I'm actually, I'm researching, uh, I'm doing research on mice and not humans. And, uh, and I'm researching so far, well, only sleep but in the future i would really like to also work more with humans and i would like to start also researching meditation because it's so it's all so related meditation sleep our health you know our brain how our brain functions so this is where i am slowly moving this will definitely not happen in five years but uh, i will be closer to it in five years wow exciting and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, good luck, the best of luck <laughs> with that. Oh, thank uh, you. And also, uh, do you have a life lesson um, that you would like to share with the audience on the show? Oh, life lesson. Wow, that, that uh, I immediately feel responsibility now to share something very useful. But I think the first thing that comes to mind, and especially from the perspective of a scientist, I would like to share a life lesson of how to deal with failure because science and experiments are full of failures every day. Uh, so dealing with failure, you know, when I started my PhD, the first two years, so now I started, it's, it's my f year five and now I will wrap it up. But for the first two years, nothing worked. Like, really? I mean, I was trying to get those mice to sleep naturally under the microscope. Nothing worked. I didn't understand when they were sleeping or were they just sitting with their eyes closed. Uh, so, yeah, it was dark times. I questioned my life choices, but eventually. So how, how did I deal with it? You know, that's where the lesson actually comes from. And this is, I think it's very interesting because it was observation and reflection. Because I was observing what I was doing what was happening and what went wrong. I, was tr I, I tried to be really, really careful in observing what was happening, you know? And then I would sit and reflect, think about what was happening, what can I change to improve this? And then slowly, slowly moving, you know, slowly changing one thing to another, again, checking, observing, again, reflecting and stuff like that. In science, it's called trial and error, basically. <laughs> I think in more spiritual words, words it's called observation and reflection, <laughs> um, and and sort of the, and then after two years, I mean, it worked. It just worked, and then the project just bloomed, and it's now so many other very interesting projects bloomed out of that, you know. And it was really, I mean, it was hard. It was hard. I wanted, of course, I wanted to give up and so on, but then just keep on observing, keep on reflecting. Maybe something seems promising. Stay determined. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's what it takes <laughs> it's such a good yeah it's just a fascinating um uh fascinating uh explanation or life lesson because you know i can really use it in my own um practice um or in my everyday life with the you know behavioral patterns or thought patterns yeah. it's like i observe myself I reflect upon what I do or what I don't want to do more and what I can do differently is what yes. I learned from your life lesson. So thank you for sharing your life lesson. Oh, no. oh you're welcome. <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> and it's been really nice to have you on the show. So uh, yeah, I'm really happy that you wanted to come and 
share your knowledge and share of yourself. Oh, Julia, I loved it. This was very nice and fun. Good. Okay, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to Connection Talks. Uh, I'm looking forward to see you in the next episode. Bye for now.